Ever wondered who and what is shaping Luxembourg? This is your Lux Unplugged podcast with your hosts, Adrian and Thierry. Hi, I'm Thierry. And I'm Adrian. This week, I'm talking to Oliver Schimek, CEO and founder at Crossland. This is the second time that we are having Crossland on the show. Last time, we talked to the Luxembourg MD, but this time around, you had a fascinating conversation with the founder of the company, who's based in the Berlin headquarters. In a nutshell, what were your takeaways? There was a funny hiccup that happened in a recent press release, suggesting that Crossland will leave Luxembourg. However, Oliver took care of clarifying the company's position in that regard. But more interestingly, we had a much wider ranging conversation about his views on startups and the investor profile in different world regions. I definitely agree. I particularly like his views on innovation in the context of banks collaborating with fintech companies and also how technology would profoundly influence the banking sector. Absolutely. Also, Oliver had a very interesting opinion on why banks are facing a deep paradigm shift and how their leadership will have to adapt to this change. His concept about taking risks depending on the investor geographies was quite intriguing to me as well. And now, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Oliver Schimek, CEO and founder at Crossland. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us here at the Luxembourg podcast. It's a pleasure. Great. So for those who don't know you, um, how would you introduce yourself? Um, like there's probably a thousand ways, but uh, straightforward. I'm Oliver, founder and CEO of Crossland. Uh, Crossland um, is a fintech based in Berlin and Luxembourg. Um, I'm a physicist by training and I'm uh, a fintech and entrepreneur enthusiast by heart. And as the founder of the company, uh, how did you come by the idea? And, and of course, what's your personal history behind Crossland? Um, so my personal history uh, took me all the way from physics uh, into financial services and finally then into my own company. And um, it frankly, has been a journey. Um, we started as a peer-to-peer lending platform because we wanted to uh, bridge the gap between borrowers and investors uh, across Europe. And um, while building that, we more and more learned where the true gaps in the markets are and where the true supply and demand sits. And that's actually the better solution uh, for a functioning European market would be a B2B concept where we connect institutional originators like banks uh, with institutional investors like pension funds and banks on the other side. So the whole thing uh, shifted from a B2C business uh, where we had direct customer connection into something that's probably on the political side um, described as a contribution to the capital markets union, um, but then on the rather practical side uh, is being described as a marketplace between institutional investors and originators. And over time, uh, the company developed and we learned more the needs or more about the needs of the various players in the market. And in the meantime, we are really partially financial company, partially technology company, and um, the both sides of the coin really connect well. 
And did you, um, after the studies, did you work um, in your chosen field to start with, or did you go straight into being an entrepreneur? Um, no, actually, I, I started trading um, quite early, doing my studies already, and this was kind of my first uh, company. Um, and this is where I also learned uh, the power of data and how to work with that. Uh, after that, I spent um, some time um, in, in another fintech learning uh, a lot about uh, credit scoring with alternative data. But this was then when I got... Um, really intrigued by the idea or by the opportunities also that uh, in the, the fintech space and especially in the lending environment um, in Europe yields and and this was this was a this was really a process um, uh, where, where where then I ended up uh, think asking myself okay um, if you see all these um, problems why, why are not trying to solve at least um, a couple of them um, and then made the, the the choice to to set up my own company, and um, here we are. Yeah. So basically, you you went through a journey of cer certainly some of the challenges, uh, but then finding solutions to the existing problems, and and just wanted to make a change. Then, uh, and that was always uh, always in Germany, I assume. Then, well, it was like um, this is a European effort, and this is a European challenge that we have. Uh, I mean, one of the fundamental uh, opportunities that that we have at Crossland is uh, uniting European fragmented markets. So uh, this is not um, a German or a uh, UK or a Luxembourgish topic. It's really a European topic. And um, I mean, I, I, I was born in Berlin and I, I live in Berlin. So this is why the company is in Berlin. But uh, in the end... Um, before this pandemic, uh, I was uh, traveling three out of five days a week and um, actually enjoyed that being everywhere and um, like also learning how different markets work. And one thing that that really uh, uh, strikes me when uh, when looking back is that the while it is a European solution, what you what you find out is that the problems that the different countries and the different organizations are have, they can be quite different so and quite local. So uh, I think there's also one of the fundamental challenges that the European Capital Markets Union has while propagating a, a um, European large solution. Um, it is oftentimes overlooked that the ability for the different players uh, needs to be um, actually developed. And this is something that, that you cannot do on a on a global or European level, but you have to really understand what the problems of the financial economy are. And if you dig deeper, then what you find is that most of the problems um, and uh, the, the the challenges that financial organizations in the lending space have is all about data. It's about data availability. It's about normalization. It's about data reconciliation. So, and this 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 journey was like also part of my experiences at Crossland. Uh, where everything started with the idea of developing a united marketplace, but then making it more and more local and granular and understanding what the various organizations that participate in such a marketplace actually need and um, developing basically a full spectrum of services to, to then enable them to participate in something like this marketplace. So, um, yeah, this, 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 is, this is, I think... Uh, one of the of the biggest learnings I had in this space over the last years. 
And uh, as the Lux Unplugged uh, podcast is obviously about Luxembourg and also its businesses, um, there were misreports that Crossland was uh, leaving Luxembourg. Uh, can you confirm where Crossland stands at the moment then? Yeah, that was actually a, a, a funny, um, uh, well, not so funny, but um, uh, <laughs> after, uh, now I can laugh about it. Um, it's, so basically, we are closing the office in Luxembourg, and we are also closing the office in London, and we have been closing um, uh, the office in Berlin because it's COVID and everybody's staying home. So there's not really a need for an office in the sense of a physical office. And this um, message somehow led um, someone to believe that we're leaving Luxembourg, which is like a completely different story. Um, and uh, so I, I read this article myself and was like um, quite surprised, uh, to, to be honest, uh, to read something like that. Uh, the, the, the more proper headline for this article would have been Crossland changes his address in Luxembourg, which kind of is uh, probably not that interesting. But no, we're not leaving Luxembourg. We have a very deep connection to Luxembourg. The Luxembourg Future Fund is an investor in the company. We perform all our securitization uh, undertakings in Luxembourg. Uh, we have people uh, working on data models in Luxembourg. So this is this is uh, all staying. Um, and uh, uh, the only thing that is happening is we are closing a physical office in Luxembourg because um, people work from ho home for the foreseeable future anyway. And um, uh, it doesn't make sense to entertain office space uh, in a, for the time being. But that's all. Is that a, um, I mean, we can, we see that from a lot of other businesses, obviously, and especially businesses, uh, not only in Luxembourg, but multinationals, as they like to call them. Um, and you having locations across Europe, obviously, then that makes you a multinational as well. Do you, are you planning to return to office uh, in f one capacity or another uh, in the in the foreseeable future, or does Crossland stand by and say uh, definitely for the next six months or nine months um, we, we are not returning to a full time occupancy in any country now because of COVID? Yes. So the Berlin office is uh, at the moment is the only one that uh, remained uh, open. I mean, uh, available uh, for use. I mean, the Frankfurt office uh, to an extent also. Um, but um, I, I mean, you have to ask yourself, um, what's the what's the purpose of an office? And the the office is the place where people meet uh, to collaborate better. Um, and uh, if there's only one or two people in an office, uh, then kind of it doesn't make sense anymore. And at the moment, especially here in the Berlin office, where we have um, a little bit more than 50 people under normal circumstances, uh, we, we, you always have the score of like, I'd say 10 to 12 to 15 people who just cannot really work from home for whatever reason. Uh, and here it makes sense to provide that space, that open space. It's, I mean, it's uh, way too large for, for, for 10, 12 people. And therefore, everybody has sufficient space. But in the um, offices where only uh, like be be below 10 people uh, under normal circumstances uh, would work, and then only two or three show up, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It makes more sense from a communication perspective if people really in their mindset say, okay, well, I'm like for the, for the foreseeable future, I'm working remotely and um, can also organize themselves accordingly. 
uh, I do not see ourselves opening the office uh, in Luxembourg uh, or London uh, until uh, summer um, because it just like it just doesn't make sense. It's an it's an on off thing. You never know if you open up again, then maybe the third, fourth, whatever wave hits and you you're closing again. So you're more busy with organizing the office and explaining people why you open and close. Uh, so there's it's it's I think it's a it's a decision um, that you see also in the larger companies, um, as you mentioned, the larger multinational uh, organizations. Um, and uh, I think it's it's logical to to do it to a certain extent uh, and and leave people at least a choice. And if you then see that um, not enough people choosing to work in an office, then it just makes sense to close it. And uh, 2020 was clearly a challenging year for for many businesses. Uh, can you tell us how COVID has impacted Crossland, not only from the side that um, a lot of um, your staff is now working from home, but more on a, on a business perspective? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, look, we are a platform where you trade or where you can trade loans. Um, so everybody knows that loans uh, are being affected by this crisis in terms of increasing defaults. So as you can imagine, the traditional business of um, a, a platform like, like us uh, is being affected uh, if the product that has been traded itself is shifting from its risk parameters. But what we saw is that there has been a very, very steep increase uh, in the demand for a uh, data products, because uh, a lot of institutions, um, whether they're on the originating or on investment side, have now a higher requirement um, in terms of predicting uh, the impacts on their portfolios. And B, um, there has been a, a stronger requirement for trading of non-performing loans. So these two uh, business fields, um, I'd say they're, they're kind of new or they came up with a stronger um, F uh, or a stronger push now. And we have adapted uh, quite quickly and offering uh, a suite of products now that uh, enable uh, banks, marketplaces, um, and even up to the larger banks um, to, uh, to 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 integrate uh, their the data um, into our platform more easily, and then derive uh, decisions more easily. I mean, you you might have read a press release from uh, Santander uh, uh, several weeks ago. Uh, where they already announced that they are implementing and using uh, the Crossland technology uh, for balance sheet optimization, and this is one of the um, one of the proof points that there, there's really a, a demand for this type of uh, technology, uh, even in larger banks. And I think this is something that uh, I, I mean the, the the need in the market was there before, but really the catalyst for that 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 was really. Uh, the COVID situation and that one of the business lines that we had uh, got a it got a got hit, uh, and we had to to quickly uh, reallocate resources and see where with our resources and with our products that we had developed uh, to that point can make the the largest impact and can uh, give the, the the best value uh, to our customers. And I think. Um, I, I would even go so far to say that if we look back um, in a couple of years, that we might even see this as one of the turning points where we made an effort to push into our product direction, which before we didn't have on the radar that clearly. 
So overall, you will say then um, from from a business point um, and from from what your customers are saying, there there are positive outlooks uh, going forward. But again, it's still hard to see what what, what the near future will bring. Um, yes, uh, I mean, um, I think one of the core things uh, when you are a young company and an entrepreneur is that you need to adapt quickly uh, to a your learnings and b external changes and um, like. Uh, it, it, sometimes you have to be really it, it's it's not a lot that you have to change and suddenly um, you unlock a value that before uh, you haven't seen in your product and I think this is exactly what happened due to COVID um, and uh, I mean if, if you just sit there and get hit by an external shock and like wonder when it's going to be over uh, that's not going to work work out well so you have to be creative you have to be uh, adaptive and uh, then you can use such situations um, uh, to to develop uh, to grow and um, yeah to 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 come out stronger uh, than before I mean I don't want to I don't want to say this is an easy or has been an easy year for Crossland uh, not at all so if I compare what we are doing now with the plans that we had in the beginning of the year I mean, everything starts with the fact that I that I wasn't in in, a, in an airplane this year. You know, I I, I didn't travel, so um, this is like a completely different um, uh, a completely different outcome than we all expected. But um, I mean, it was a catalyst. Uh, it was a catalyst to some extent to also uh, execute certain changes and um, uh, slight business pivots and adaptions. Um, that in the end, um, uh, I'm I'm convinced will turn out positive. When you just mentioned, uh, you know, the traditional businesses uh, in 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 your field or in general in finance, uh, you, one of your core strengths is flexibility and changing to Correct. to the ever changing environment, and that is a core strength, I would say. Yes, it's. I mean, it's a necessity. I mean, if you if you really think about it, then banks cannot really innovate why not because banks are built to be stable uh, and stability is kind of the opposite of what you need for innovation because to innovate you need to fail you need to be able to fail and then recalibrate and uh, like pivot the, the 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 product offering uh, in a way uh, that uh, that that it's better than before and that's exactly that's that's one of the qualities that banks cannot have by design so therefore, this 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 um, volatility in terms of um, trial and error and also flexibility, that's one of the core strengths that fintechs have to have uh, in this market to be attractive to banks and uh, basically then be, be the outsourced innovation uh, environment for the banking industry. Uh, because otherwise, if you're not bringing innovative services back into the banking industry, why would the banking industry want to collaborate with you there's no reason so uh, you need to be able to do something that traditional banks cannot do to create the value and i think um, as you as you mentioned rightly flexibility is one of the core strengths that you need but also you need always to have the right vision to like flexibility alone won't help you need a north star you need to understand the, where markets move and where also processes and services will end up in like say five years, 10 years, 15 years so that you can adapt your your productivity and your product cycles into exactly that direction and realign 
whenever required, whether that's an external shock or whether that's that's um, a missing success on certain product lines. It doesn't matter. You need this flexibility uh, and power of innovation. And that will literally then uh, close the full circle, uh, coming back to what you earlier said, that uh, fintech needs banks and banks needs fintech. So, um, And that's then obviously a good position to be in then. Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, look, if you, um, if you think about where, where banks need to be in 10 years, and if you compare that against where they are today, um, then you will see that that there have been like in all other industries there have been paradigm shifts take newspaper industry so you had like a newspaper printed newspaper then uh, newspapers get digitalized so you have suddenly the online version of your newspaper but then there was twitter it's a paradigm shift it's a technology that brings your news at the moment when they happen and you can select what you want to read and what you want to receive. That's a completely, I mean, it's its its a news delivery business, but it's a paradigm shift. Now take that to the financial industry. Like you had banking, banking in a branch business. Then you had digital, like online banking and app. But there will be paradigm shifts in the sense that banks can be run fully automated in the back end. There's no reason, there's all data, all data available. There's no reason why the decision-making process of, of a treasury or risk department over time cannot be fully automated or at least um, have an automated, semi-automated um, help for the people that work there. Um, you, you have things like, like cars that, would, uh, that buy their parking tickets uh, automatically. Now, name one bank that is ready for those paradigm shifts. And this is just not, this is just not the way banking is being set up. Now, these services and the infrastructures and the paradigm shifting technologies, they will be built. And the question is whether they are coming from the big techs, merging or moving into converging into banking, or if they come from the banking world, converging into a paradigm shifting platform platform-based um, business model. And here's really where I think there's missing leadership in banks that understands digital. So if you analyze the leadership teams of, uh, let's say, the largest five German banks, then what you will find is that 90% of the time they have spent in their careers in banking and maybe another 5% in consulting, and maybe another 3% in government positions. And then you come to this teeny tiny bit of 0. Point something percent where they have at least seen something that smells like a digital business. But the problem is what you actually need is leadership that understands digital businesses from scratch. And here, really, banks over time will completely depend on outsourced technology developments and you see that when in the capital markets i mean if you see the valuations of banks over time um, then the multiples in terms of revenue they have continuously decreased over the last years which for them is a is a poisonous uh, downward spiral because in the end it will become impossible to raise additional equity so here really i i i, I sometimes have the feeling that the banking sector doesn't really see the the extent of the problem they're actually in and they will hit and i think in the end it also comes down to personal um stories so if you can survive with that for the next five years then the hurdle to change something might be 
a little bit too large for you as an individual member of such a team. But this um, uh, this symbiosis between fintechs and banks is something that grows stronger and stronger. And uh, we've seen it over the last years. Um, and I'm very positive that uh, this is a trend that will go on for the next uh, foreseeable future. Okay, yeah, I, I think I think you're right in where individuals probably think more of a short-term vision because um, somebody who's been in a, in a job or in a role or working for a particular business for the past 10, 15 or 20 years uh, might don't want to think 20 years ahead uh, while your outlook is obviously very different because uh, like you mentioned just before, um, we don't know where we're going to be in 10 years' time. A lot of traditional businesses only look for the next or very often only for the next quarter uh, or for the next year or, or uh, and longer will be then a, a five-year plan. But uh, yeah, coming coming back, uh, obviously, uh, what you said earlier, uh, especially since the outbreak of the uh, pandemic, uh, European governments have provided various ways to help businesses weather the storm, such as guaranteed, uh, guaranteed loans, lending facilities, and so on. And how does Crossland fit into this framework? Yeah, this is one of the um, sub- of the surprises that I uh, saw over um, the last year. Uh, we don't fit into them at all, and um, this is. I mean, we are in a in a lucky position, I'd say, because um, we ha- have a strong funding base. But uh, other companies uh, that are in similar situations. Um, uh, they, they kind of have trouble trouble um, during these times, and um, this this I think is a bit concerning in the sense that um, the government help programs were designed in a way um, where I think the the the, the, the well established economies they can benefit from that and they should benefit from that. I mean, don't get me wrong; it's super important that that, that we stabilize uh, the overall economy, but it showed again that. Uh, the, the public sector doesn't really fully understand the mindset of uh, of an agile innovation. And um, I think uh, to, to an extent, it wasn't really a surprise after all, because like you see that in many um, uh, in, in, in many forms and shapes. But I think um, this mindset is something that we need in Europe. Uh, in the US, it's a completely different story. Uh, and uh, the ability to go into risks um, are completely different and the willingness to take risks are completely different. Uh, while in Europe, you know, um, everybody's more like looking on on protecting the downside. And so what's the downside if a handful of startups uh, doesn't make it during the crisis? Well, it's probably not the same as if the car industry gets a hit. But um, still, the opportunity costs that you lose for the future if, uh, if this um, innovation isn't taking place, and that's something, uh, it's probably a little bit like climate change. So you don't see it today, uh, but um, over time you realize, well, there's a Google and Apple and, and all these companies that come out of the United States. So you start wondering um, uh, whether it was such a smart idea not to push innovation in Europe. And, and then over time, you see, oh, uh, these companies, they get a little bit more mighty than you thought they would get. So suddenly you see, okay, well, there's a danger. And then you start realizing, okay, maybe we should 
push innovation a little bit more in uh, in Europe as well. Uh, and then you do it like with like 50% speed. So that is kind of a mentality that doesn't really work. Um, I mean, we have fantastic entrepreneurs in Europe and um, I've seen stories in my um uh in 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 uh, in my uh, in my direct um environment where entrepreneurs shifted their business really 180 degrees think about young companies that were in travel in the travel business in the travel industry they had to reinvent themselves overnight and they did um i would sometimes really wish or hope for a little bit more awareness and a little bit more willingness uh to produce a european champion of something whether that's in financial industry whether that's in the music industry whether that's in the it uh, hardware or software industry i don't care but like the the commitment from the political side to not leave that to china and the us i think um something that's really missing in europe yeah if you if you look at um, the top five or even the top 10 businesses like the Amazons and the Facebooks of this world um, and so on. Yeah, most of them are uh, Chinese and US. Um, and, and in Europe, we seem to I always, think always it's look... It's worse than that. I think if you look at the top 200 companies of the world, um, mm. then you will probably find only a handful that are in Europe. Or, or, or created in Europe. Um, Correct. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because uh, as well as the, 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 the mindset... Uh, of European businesses, and and that also is uh, uh, the same, especially for a country like Luxembourg, is the traditional business model is the one most will choose to either work in or to start, rather than being more creative and more risk taking, of course. Um, uh, but like any startup in any in any sector, um, everything comes with a higher risk, but it could be it can be higher rewarding uh, before. Amazon uh, started, there was also a European person who had an idea, a similar idea, just didn't convert it into a business uh, for, uh, in particular, maybe the reasons where uh, just chose to do a more traditional way. And that, that is a difficulty where Europe overall has a, a catch up to do uh, against um, China, US and so on. Yeah, but um, you know, it's it's the same that uh, we just like discussed about what what's happening in, in in banking and why banking doesn't really innovate because the individuals that are the ones that making the decisions. It's not companies that make decisions, and it's also not us partnering with a large bank, but it's us partnering with smart and driven people within a bank. And I think the same is true for. Um, innovation and development um, in Europe. So you need individuals who take a risk. And these need to be individuals from the investor side. And we have upcoming very good investors in Europe. So it's, it's um, and we have, we are lucky enough to have um, some of them aboard our company. You need that on the political side, um, people who really also take a risk for innovation. And then you need it on the entrepreneurial side. I think the entrepreneurial side is the one where you find most um, uh, of the of the willingness to take risk. But then, you know, a sad thing happens because like either, so I've seen a lot um, or during my travels in the US last year, not this year, um, there's a lot of Germans uh, that found startups uh, in Silicon Valley or in the New York area. So why are they doing that over there? Because they're, like the conditions are better. And another another thing happens is that 
you know, most companies go through pivotal moments. So you start uh, with a vision and then you build your first product and you sell it and get first traction and you see, oh, things don't turn out the way they were supposed to. And this is the moment where you need to pivot your business. And this is where European investors typically say, oh, well, the hypothesis didn't work out. Um, so sorry, we stopped that. But those are the moments where value has been created because this is the moment where um, you have learnings uh, in contrast to the situation when the investment took place. Uh, this was an hypothesis. In the meantime, you have learnings. Um, and this is where you need resilient capital. So capital that can also endure a certain phase of uncertainty and bring you all the way through. And this is something that's lacking in Europe, and this is where US investors step in. So what you what you find is that the European investor space is preparing the companies into that pivotal space or pivotal stage. And this is then where, where the US investors come in and catch the opportunity. And this is this is um, I think it's 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 a it's a problem by design um, that is happening. I mean the situation has become better over the last couple of years. But um, it's the same story. It's always individuals that are taking risks and that push forward innovation. And um, uh, almost coming to, to an end of, of our recording, and in late 2019, your company raised an additional 35 million from investors. Um, what are your plans going forward with the new funding? Um, I, I mean, this, um, this whole space that we are working in, this, um, pretty underdeveloped to be honest um so if you think about uh, what's what's required for uh, for a transaction or for 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 a debt market to happen is actually like you need the market itself you need a kind of a language which is data in this case and you need the logistics which in this case is securitization and settlement so we need to develop all three of them because they're not existing we need to develop the data language we need to develop the market and we need to develop um, uh, and the logistics and the settlement. Uh, so what we are doing um, uh, is uh, investing and developing and innovating on all of these three fronts um, and uh, going through proof points with the various partners that are small um, and medium-sized banks that are marketplace lenders um, on the originator side. And those are also large banks like Santander. And um, uh, basically bringing forward those milestones, that's uh, the core, uh, the, the core uh, challenge for the foreseeable future. And um, I, I, I think that, um, especially with this capital round, with, uh, with a strategic investor like Santander, and having uh, investors like, like ABN AMRO, uh, like Lakestar, also like the, the Luxembourg Future Fund aboard, um, this puts us, in, puts us in the right position uh, to also have the standing in the market to once we develop that uh, with one bank uh, to then duplicate it in many, many, many other banks. And what banks actually of that size of a center they need is kind of an operating system because in the end, they, they would like to participate in something like the Capital Markets Union. But then in the end, if you go into the organization, the lending data or the loan data might be spread across like seven, eight subsystems. And if you try to uh, consolidate them, then you see errors in the in the data or they're not adding up. So these are the problems that you have to tackle, that you have to fix first. Then you can help them to build an execution or a decision-making layer 
um, so that they can actually say, okay, this is our portfolio that we want to sell, or these are portfolios that we want to buy. And then the third step only is um, capital markets union in the sense of, of, of a marketplace. So um, it is really an infrastructure that is missing in Europe. And building infrastructure is always a long-term game. Um, it's nothing that you can just do overnight and then like uh, double your customers uh, month by month. This is not this is not our game. Um, so here it's really building sustainable infrastructure to develop what's commonly called capital markets union um, in the debt space. Oliver, uh, thank you very much uh, for taking your time to speak to me. Hopefully, when all the outbreak and the pandemic uh, is finished um, at some point uh, we get a chance to talk again and hopefully we speak about the year that is coming ahead of, of that time then yes would be my pleasure Jay. thank you very much thanks for listening to the Luxon Plot podcast please share this podcast with friends and family and leave us a review on iTunes also please don't forget to visit our website luxonplot.com and see you next time mm-hmm.